0: All right, let's, let's open the Bible together and see what God has to say to us. Um, we're reading from a letter, a letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church in the first century Rome. And I mention that every week because it's important to remember we're not reading um, some spiritual platitudes or some fridge magnets or even just some nice verses that would work well in a song. We're reading a letter. And in order to understand what God is saying to us as a church, we are having to understand, first of all, what he was saying to them in the first century Rome. And then, once we've established the meaning of the passage, we then ask God, what are you saying to us today? And we believe that the Bible is 100% the work of man and 100% the work of God. It, was, it is a book or a collection of 66 books written to real people in history who were facing real circumstances. And as such, it addresses those circumstances. It is also people, we believe, people were writing at the time that they were writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes the writers didn't even realize they were writing Holy Scripture, perhaps. But nevertheless, we believe the Bible is 100% the work of man and 100% the work of God. And today I want us to talk about equality, hypocrisy and our hearts. So I was thrilled by that little uh, illustration there about heart service because I feel like I don't need to make that point at all because Shayla's already done that much better than I could ever. So here we go. Um, we're going to read from Romans chapter 2 and I'll read from verse 12 through to the end of the chapter. For all who have sinned apart from, or without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves. That's where that phrase comes from, a law unto themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Jesus Christ. But if you call yourself a Jew and you rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent... Because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by the breaking of the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision is indeed of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. and circumcision a matter of the heart by the spirit not by the letter his praise is not from man but from God this is God's word and understanding the context is important the amount of times you read the word law and circumcision and obey if you're not familiar with why Paul's writing and who he's writing to what happens is the words just all kind of wash over us, and if you're anything like me, we glaze, I I glaze over. Well, let's talk about our neediness, first of all. Um, In order to make sense of what Paul's saying, we need to start there, because the high point of the letter so far has been in chapter one, where in, in verse 16, after long introductions and explanations of things, he says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? The gospel, we said, is the word that means good news. It is a A political statement in his day, in our day, it's a a genre type of music. But the gospel is good news, an announcement, a message that Jesus is king. He says, I'm not ashamed of that good news. Why? Because, or for, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And it's then after writing that, that I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation, He then carries on from there to to convince his readers or his listeners that people need salvation. Everyone needs salvation is the point of chapter 2. And he started by talking first of all about the Romans or in his day the Gentiles, pagans you might say. People outside of the Jewish faith in his day. Because he's writing to a church that is made up of a mix of people. Some of them are Roman citizens. And proud of their Roman status. And some of them are Jewish Christians, people who have the, the Old Testament, the law, he refers to as the law of Moses in the Old Testament. They have the law of Moses, they have the Ten Commandments, they have a proud long history of being known as God's people. He's writing to a church where you've got Romans who are proud of being Romans and they look down on the Jews, and you have Jewish people who are Christians who are proud of being Jews and look down on the Romans. And so Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's salvation for everyone who believes. No matter who you are, Jew, Greek, Roman, wise, foolish, barbarian, he says, whoever. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's salvation for all who believes. And he started by describing the immorality of the Romans. And as he's writing about Roman society, there's this, again, High point if you're a Jew at least, where he says in verse 29 of of chapter 1, they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, covetousness, evil, envy, murder, strife, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, proud, boastful. The first section of end of chapter 1 and beginning of chapter 2, Paul is writing to the church and he's making the case that all people, the entire human race, the Romans included, the pagans, they are immoral. And as a result, they're cut off from God. And as he's doing this, you, almost, you can almost hear the Jews in the church, the Jewish Christians, cheering him on. Going, yes, go on, Paul, lay into them. They are immoral. They don't have the law of God. They're not proud. They're like us. They don't have a long history of being God's people. Like, we are. Go on, Paul, lay into them. And then in chapter 2, he kind of turns his attention on the Jews And there's a notice, an audible gulp in the church as as he does this and starts to explain to them because he says in um, another verse, which I can't read my notes properly, he says, all have sinned, there we go, verse 12, all have sinned and are without the law, they perish without the law and those who've sinned under the law, they will also be judged by the law. He makes the case it's not just the Romans who are sinners but the Jews as well. And he effectively is asking the Jewish people in the church, or he's challenging the religious people in the church. Who, by the way, it's worth bearing in mind that the strongest words of challenge and criticism in the Bible are leveled not at immoral people, but religious people, people who do good and are proud of their do-gooding. And so Paul in writing this way to the religious people in the church is in a long history of Bible writers laying into religious people and he lays the challenge at their feet where does your essentially where does your confidence come from? Where does your confidence before God come from? Where does your confidence before men come from? verse 13, it is not the hearers of the law who are confident or righteous, confident before God, but the doers of the law. So, Jewish Christians, where does your confidence come from? Which I think is a good question for us. Where does your confidence come from in life? Now, in life, there are some people you meet who, who just seem to be confident in whatever situation they're in they're the the alpha mamas and males who everyone gravitates around oh look at these people they're so powerful and confident nothing seems to faze them I can ask them to do anything that would make me nervous and they just breeze through life and then there are others who are on the outside of that confidence looking on going how do I get that confidence where does that confidence come from they're very aware of their need and that's the case in life but in truth we're all needy And our neediness shows itself in different ways. We begin life as vulnerable, little infants, and we carry on life in that way. If you don't take the Bible as your authority source, you might take some psychology and some science, but this is what one psychologist says. Um, He says, very early in life, every child concludes, I am not okay. He makes a conclusion about his parents also, They are okay. And this is the first thing that every child figures out in his lifelong attempt to make sense of himself and the world in which he lives. This position, I'm okay, I'm not okay, you are okay, is the most influential decision of his life. Every child makes that comment at least some point. My parents seem to be able to exist and care for themselves and their needs. I don't. I'm needy. I'm not Okay. In that sense, there is complete equality in the human race because every one of us is desperately needy. And that's why when Paul says the, the gospel is salvation for all who believe, there's, we should listen in. Because salvation, would, salvation isn't a term that basically means you can go to heaven when you die if you pray this spell, pray this prayer which is in some parts of the church and in Christianity, salvation has come to mean you go to heaven when you die, which in a society like this, if you tell most people, if you trust in Jesus, you'll go to heaven when you die, if they're honest, their response is, that's great, I'll wait till I'm close to death then, because... I'm not convinced that he's salvation for this life. If he's salvation for the next life, I'll wait till I get near the next life, but I need need to have some fun. And we all know that Jesus kills fun, or he's against fun. But salvation, in Paul's understanding, is rescue from, deliverance from, this deep brokenness, neediness. I'm not okay. That all of us experience. And in the book of Romans what Paul's addressing is one attempt that they were using and we used to deal with that neediness. And that attempt to deal with it that he's addressing is the attempt of comparison. These Jewish people compare themselves to others and find themselves out on top all the time. And I think, you see, in life, my observation is we have, I think, in our heads um, this mechanism of constant ongoing comparisons sewn into us from a young age and whenever I meet someone it's almost like I flip a coin and in conversation with them I'm constantly flipping coins in my mind and on one side is I'm okay and on the other side is I'm not okay or on one side is I win on the other side is I lose or it might just be pride versus self-pity I'm impressed by myself, I'm down on myself. And in every conversation we have with people, we're subconsciously flipping these coins. So, you're out on the school run, and you're there on time. You're flipping the coin in your head, and everyone that you see who's coming late, you're thinking, I win. It's landing that way up. I win. I got here first. I feel secure. Or you're at work, and you're always there early. Everyone else comes in late. I win. You stay late. I win. Um, or you, you notice someone else's car and I've got a better car. I win. Um, you look down at your clothes, you realize they're ironed, yours aren't. I win. Um, and we do this, my haircuts in keeping with the latest style, yours isn't. My phone's new, yours isn't. I win, I win, I win. Or you're at a party uh, or a group of people and the question comes up again, what do you do for a living? It's like us Westerners, we're obsessed with that question. What do you do? In other words, how valuable are you? How important are you to the economy of my country? <laughs> and, and if you're at a party and you're talking to someone, and you say, what do you do? And they say, I'm, I'm in between jobs right now. You think, oh, I'm not. I have a job. I win. You think, I'm, I don't know, I'm an estate agent. You know, I sell houses to people. You don't have a job. I feel confident. And then you talk to someone else and say, what do you do? They say, I, I'm a property developer. I basically buy and sell houses, and I make them as well, and you think, oh, I lose, I'm going to talk to this person some more, because they make me feel good about myself, you make me feel bad about myself, and it exists in the church. Look at the size of my Bible <laughs> in comparison to them. Oh, that's perhaps prophetic right there. Um, look at the size of my Bible, I win, like, oh, you don't, I remember this when I first joined the church, and I got given a free Bible from the alpha course that I did, and I carried it everywhere with me, and this I met someone else who had this Bible with multiple colors on it, and tabs at the margins, and they'd underlined everything, and it was just this big, and I had this tiny little thing, I thought, oh, I lose, this is a game of constant winning or losing, I feel bad about myself, or come to church, you think, I'm I'm just so glad I'm here because life's so busy and chaotic. Getting out the house is a challenge. I win. And you walk in, you think, oh, you've been here since 8 o'clock serving. You're serving every week. I lose. Um, It's enough for me to make it on Sundays, but but you seem to go to all these groups in the week. Your life is so free that you can do that. Fantastic. I lose. You win. Constant comparison all the time, and it eats away at you to the point that you're constantly... Playing this game in your mind, they raise their hands in worship. That seems like what the keen people do. I'm gonna, I need to raise my hands in worship and if I don't raise my hands in worship, I lose. Okay, I must muster up the courage to raise my hands in worship because that's more spiritual apparently. That's gonna help. Constant winning, losing, winning, losing all the time. It's exhausting. But it's one way that we deal with our brokenness. We're not okay. And you find this in every group setting, don't you? In a meeting when someone gets praised for an aspect of the job or the work and you don't get praised, you sit there thinking, oh my goodness, all the coins are falling against me. I'm losing. And so you have to tell them, I was here till midnight last night painting this building <laughs> or I was doing this. We justify, we justify to make ourselves feel less needy. And we have this in our, in our house when, Uh, If we're having a dinner time and I compliment one of the children and not the other, then one of them always pipes up and says, what about me? To which I always have to say to them, I'm not talking to you, I'm talking to them. I love them. You I'm less sure about. Uh, (laughs) I don't say that, of course. But I have to train them. Me encouraging them does not mean I'm discouraging you. You know I love you. But they've done something good. Let's celebrate it. It's ugly, but it is the best solution we've got to some of our neediness. So what's the solution? Well, you see, the the problem that Paul's writing into in the book of Romans isn't just an issue of, am I better or worse? See, the Jewish people had developed a system whereby they always won, and it was one way that they dealt with their brokenness. Because the Jewish people had the Old Testament law, the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. So as we mentioned, as I mentioned, they, they knew they were better than anybody else because they have the Old Testament. So they created a system in their mind that gave them confidence, but it was a confidence that was rooted in cultural snobbery and pride. We are the people of God. And when you do that, it's one way of stopping the constant flicking of a coin because you don't have to constantly flick the coin every time you meet someone, because frankly, you know you're better. And so you think, I don't need to flick the coins because I'm just better. Another word for that is arrogance. <laughs> but we do it a lot, that's what sexism is. I'm a man, I'm a woman, so I'm better. Um, I, uh, or classism, I'm middle class, I'm working class. It's better. Nationalism, we do it over and over again. Racism. It's one way of avoiding the constant anxiety of flipping coins because you convince yourself, I'm better because I'm white, because I'm male, because I'm university educated. Or you might meet someone who's university educated and you're not and you realize they've got no common sense. So you think, "Ha, I've got common sense. That becomes my thing and they're stupid. Um, And I need to teach them to change light bulbs. But there we go. And this is what the Apostle Paul says, most shocking of all to that group of people, the racist, classist, sexist, arrogant Jewish people in this church. He says, when Gentiles, or if we like, when the Romans in the church, when them, those who don't have the law of God, like you do, you impressive Jewish people, when they who don't have it do what the law requires, and yet they're doing it by nature because they're just operating out of a human conscience, Rather than obeying a law, when they do it by nature, they show that the work of the law is written on their hearts and their conscience bears witness. So he tells them they might not have the law, but by the way they're behaving, they're showing that they have the law. And as he says that to the church, what what you're supposed to hear is this. As they realize they're stripped of what they thought they could put confidence in. The coins fall to the ground. You see, there is total equality before God. All of us are equally sinful, equally vulnerable, equally broken. That's what he says in verse 12. All have sinned. All who have sinned. Comparison is not the game that you can play to give you confidence before God or before men. It just, it runs out at some point. It gets ugly. Because before God... There's total equality. In fact, there are times in the Bible where someone tries to get confidence through equal, through comparison, and God just always masterfully cuts them down. So there's a famous example in the Old Testament where Joshua has been commanded by God to be a you know as a military leader to go and march into that country and defeat those people, and then Joshua has this vision, and standing before him is this mighty, powerful, hench-looking angel. And Joshua's rightly terrified, and he looks at the angel and he says, are you on our side or are you on their side? In other words, flicking the coin. Are you going to help us win or are you going to make us lose? And the angel's response is, no, (laughs) which is the best. Are you on our side or their side? No. (laughs) Oh my goodness, there's like a different category going on here. Or you see at the end of the Gospels, when um, Jesus' friend Peter He's standing there and he's looking at the apostle John who had his reputation for being more holy than other people and he says, he's asking him, what about him? What's going to happen to him? What, is he going to die or is he going to live forever because he's so holy, Jesus? And Jesus' response is, no. Just you follow me. Stop asking that question. Comparison is not the paradigm. It's not the way of thinking and living that people of God should live by. It's ugly. And it's only ever a symptom of our brokenness. You know, we get impressed, we find, with the sails on our boat, we try to fill the wind in our sails to give us some energy. God, I'm better than them, I'm better than them. And he shoots holes in our sails every time. No, you're not going to get confidence through comparison. In fact, if you try to get confidence through comparison, it will only ever go bad for you. You will only ever be undone, which is what he does here. So we've looked at equality And then he goes on to talk about hypocrisy, because religious people are really hard to get through to. People who think that they can get confidence before God because of their morality, those are hard people to get through to. And so he goes from trying to correct them to insulting them. And this is what happens. Um, he, He says... If your confidence comes from moral, morality or religion, you have to, the trouble is, you have to pretend eventually, because deep down you know you're not as good as you're trying to make out. So, if your confidence comes from being someone who always, gets, who always knows the right thing to do, you have to pretend like you know everything, and, and you can never admit that you're wrong, so therefore you end up faking it, faking it as like you know more than you actually do. If your confidence comes from looking the best, Then you can't stand any photo that makes you look bad, and so you end up using all the Instagram filters in the world to make every photo of you look glamorous. Or you take about 15 selfies before you actually choose a picture, because my confidence comes from looking good, and I can't appear to not look good because that—what I'm doing. So you become a hypocrite. I'm going to make sure I look better than I actually am. Or if your confidence, and this is, I mean, this is one that I'm sure affects none of you. If your confidence comes from the fact that you're busy, you always have to make out like you're busier than you are. Because whenever you meet someone, and how are you? I'm busy. Brackets. I'm important. And so the idea that someone would ask you, how are you? Are you busy at the moment? And you say, no, I'm not busy. But I'm quite lazy. (laughs) But nothing going on. You wouldn't do that. Because your confidence comes from the fact that You're busy. Confidence gained in that way is like an inflated ego, where we constantly pretend as though we are more powerful, more religious, more moral than we are. So you'll name drop people that you know who are important in your circle of friends. Or you'll tell people, you'll tell your wife, I cleaned the house all week. Or I've done this, I was up all night with the kids. Um, I'm so tired because I'm so busy. It's where you realise that blowing up a balloon in front of people um, isn't as easy as you might think. Don't judge me, my confidence doesn't come from my balloon blowing skills. And so what Paul does... In, in Romans chap, chapter 2, verses 19 to 24, is he attacks their hypocrisy. He says, if you are sure that you yourselves are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, if you then who teach others, do not teach yourself. <laughs> you seem to present a good front we know you're full of hot air while you preach against stealing do you steal you make out like you're this moral superstar but when no one's looking you're fiddling the books or you're claiming extra expenses you who say you must not commit adultery do you commit adultery you're constantly desiring someone else who's not your spouse and in your hearts are longing for them. You who abhor idols, hate idols. Oh, we hate people who worship things other than God, don't we? And yet, you know, some of the things that they do are quite good. So we rob from temples. We take the things that are of benefit to us from that system, maybe. You who boast in the law, dishonor God. And then he says, as if they haven't got it, you, as a result of your activity, the name of God is blasphemed. Among the Gentiles, because of you. Paul comes along to people who are hypocritical, who have been puffed up with pride. <laughs> Interesting. Hold on. <laughs> this is going to be a really powerful illustration. <laughs> He does that. He he lets the air out of their ego. He says, you can't get, and now I'm lightheaded. (laughs) He lets the air out of their ego and says, you can't get your confidence like that. In fact, it's like throwing cold water on someone who's drunk to sober them up. They're so drunk on their self-importance. I'm Jewish. I'm religious. I go to church every week. I'm part of this Bible study. I have a big, fat Bible. The words of Jesus are in red in my Bible. The words of God are in black in mine, so there. Um, (laughs) He goes to people like that. And he says, seriously, if that's how you're going to get your confidence, he lines up all of the ways that they have broken the law. A bit like lining up all of the, the bottles of wine in front of someone you're trying to convince as an alcoholic. Look, you have a problem. You're a hypocrite. He lays into them until they get it. You see, these Jewish people, they think to themselves, I've got a bandage over the wound of my brokenness, so that smell you're smelling is not really a problem, or the pus that's seeping through its not really a problem because I've got a bandage. The bandage is the, the moral law of God in the Old Testament. Paul rips the bandage off and says, you have a bandage, but you're broken. Stop it. A friend of mine calls this the Simon Cowell moment. The moment where someone who thinks they're fantastic appears before the judge and he says, no, you're really not. Your your nanny lied to you. You can't sing. And as a result of that behavior, Paul says, the name of God is discredited. It's blasphemed. People think the church has nothing to offer because look at Christians. We, We know there's truth in that when I became a Christian, I didn't want to tell people for a long time, partly because I thought to myself, the world's got enough hypocrites. <laughs> I don't want to be another one. And I remember years ago meeting someone who, who worked for something called the Rome, I shouldn't really say this, uh, who worked for an organization that, that was very um, evangelistic in promoting sexual purity and chastity outside of marriage. And they've gone to secondary schools and tell people and insist on young people um, who aren't Christians behaving in a certain way because it was the morally right thing to do. And then this person themselves went and had an affair. Very few things break my heart like that kind of hypocrisy. It's not Don't get me wrong, it's not a hypocrite to call people to a higher standard and fall short of it. It's a hypocrite to call people to a higher standard and pretend like you are living up to that standard. And that's what he's confronting. You're broken. Stop it. You're proud. You're arrogant. You're trusting in your own morality, and it won't help you at all. Stop it. He's telling religious people, listen to me. And then he ends this section, and where we'll close, he ends by Helping them to see, or he drops the breadcrumbs of where he's about to go in, in next week's sermon. He drops the breadcrumbs of where he's about to go by getting them to consider the heart. The issue of the the heart of the issue is the issue of the heart. Essentially, he says to them in verse 29, "A Jew is not one outward; in, is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man." but from God. And he's making a little pun here because the word Jew comes from a word that sounds like the word for praise. So the Jews were thought of as those who praised God. That's where their name originates. And he puns that word by saying such a man's praise comes not from man, but from God. He addresses people who are essentially living in such a way that they want praise from people. Come on, you inflate my ego. You bow down to my greatness. You, you, you help fix my brokenness. And he calls them back to this age-old tradition in the Bible and reminds them, man might look at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 10, where the the law that they're so proud of, where the law was first given, it says this. It says, and this will be uncomfortable language for a Sunday morning, circumcise the foreskin of your heart. Because God gave the Jewish people this uh, institution of circumcision as a way of marking them out from the other peoples and for them it had become like a a symbol of pride. We are the circumcised ones, we're the powerful, we're the moral elite in our day. we're We're those who recycle avidly or we're those who eat conscientiously. We're those who behave in a particular way and hold the right moral views that means that our society thinks we're acceptable. We are those. It becomes a, a symbol of pride. It was supposed to be something that for the Jews marks them out. Circumcise the males as a way of indicating they are my people. And they're taking it. And actually it was supposed to be as a statement of your weakness. If you like, without being too crude on Sunday mornings, Put a cut in the part of the man that a lot of men boast in. Their, their prowess and strength comes from their virility. Cut that, because I want you to boast in weakness. Be my people. That's what is going on. And in the Old Testament law, it says, circumcise your heart. It's never really about the outward display of morality. It's about the heart issue here before God. He says circumcision is by the spirit, not by the law. In other words, it's something that God does. And it's coming to God and asking him to change your heart To mend the brokenness is coming to God and acknowledging, I have nothing to boast in. No amount of flipping coins and getting confidence is going to help me. No amount of puffing up my ego and keeping all the right rules will ever help me. I need you to help me. It's when people behave like that, when they're broken and humble and desperate for God, he comes to them and says, I will change your heart. I'll soften your heart towards me and I will make you someone who who is praised by me, not by others. That is what he's writing to a church where people are arrogantly boasting and getting one up over the other. I'm better than you because I'm Roman. I'm better than you because I'm Jewish. I'm better than you because of this, because of that. Paul says, no, stop. Never supposed to be like that. It is the gospel of God that is the power of God for salvation. It is that message that Jesus has died in weakness and brokenness in order to forgive all who put their hope in his death on the cross, in order to help all you who are willing to acknowledge your neediness. And Jesus was raised to new life as a vindication of him and as a promise to all those who put their hope in him, I'll raise you as well. And I'll put that life in you. I'll change your heart as a down payment, as a guarantee that this will happen to you. He was raised, so now have my spirit in your heart as a guarantee that you also will be raised and my spirit in your heart in order that you'll be transformed and you won't need to live self-centeredly anymore. You won't need to live conscious of the praise of men. You'll be able to live for the praise of God. You'll be able to pursue my plans for your life. That's what... Shayla was getting at when she said God wants to service your heart he wants you to let go of pretense and he wants you to come as you are deflate your balloons the ego that you're trusting in your religious deeds and he speaks in this way to religious people because he knows how dangerous it is for churches to start to get confidence from their own religiosity It's ugly. It's not the gospel. The gospel is he saves. We just bring our need. Let's pray.